Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trun Arne Unheim, futurist and author. In episode 15 of the podcast, the topic is the future of pre-seed investing. Our guest is Magnus Grimelon, CEO and founder of Antler, the early stage VC. We talk about trigger points to achieve greatness, promising startups, the globalization of venture capital, the importance of finding founders with drive, spike, and grit. We also discuss the future of work. Magnus, how are you today? Very good, very good. Great to talk. Excellent uh, to be on your podcast. Appreciate the invitation. Sure. So Magnus, I'm I'm uh, happy to have you here today. We are fellow Norwegians, but uh, it wouldn't seem like that from from your background because you have uh, been a lot of places in your career. Uh, from uh, you know, from you know, Norwegian farmlands, which we'll talk about, uh, to McKinsey, um, to Harvard, and now to Southeast Asia. I wanted to unpack some of your background just for, for starters. What, uh, what job or educational experience has, has taught you, you the most? Uh, well, it's, it's hard to say. I think I learned different things uh, in, in different parts uh, of my life and different experiences. Uh, obviously, they're, they're quite varied, right? From uh, uh, you know, the military to, to working in consulting and, and uh, now being in venture capital. Um, uh, I think the the where, where I learned the most, I think, was was probably building Solora.com. Uh, uh, you know, building a company from scratch and scaling it to uh, you know a cu- couple of thousand people is uh, is an experience where you learn a lot about yourself, uh, other people, and uh, uh, you know a lot of other things on the way. So, uh, so I'd say that's probably where I learned the most. T- tell us a little bit about Zalora. What kind of company is it, and and uh, what were some of the salient moments uh, in, in, in that experience? So Solora.com is uh, the biggest fashion e-commerce company in Southeast Asia. And, um, you know, obviously building an e-commerce company, um, you know, from, 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 from the outside in actually um, can look rather straightforward. I mean, you need a website and then you need to be able to take orders. You need to have something to sell and then you need to find a way to market that and then you need to be able to deliver it. But I think the very interesting thing with, uh, you know, the way we do um, e-commerce in Southeast Asia when we started it is that, um, you know, f- first first of all, obviously, when you're you're building it for scale, you know, in Southeast Asia, there's about 600 million people um, in our target markets. It was Southeast Asia plus Taiwan and Hong Kong. Uh, the technology stack you need to build is, 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 is obviously rather large. Also, the products you need to to put on there are, are, are a bit more than you would otherwise do. But I think the biggest challenge was literally around building the infrastructure. So when we were uh, building this up, um, you know, for example, in markets like Indonesia with, you know, two, 250 million plus people, 250, 300 million people, um, only about 2%, I think, of, of the population when we started had the, a credit card that they were able to pay with online. Um, wow! How also, did you solve that problem? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, you need to find a new way to take uh, take payments, and and we started off um, enabling bank transfer, which literally means that everyone with a bank account could could pay online. But that was a very cumbersome process, meaning you needed to make the order on our site, then you got a reference code, then you had to go to the bank and provide uh-huh. that reference code, pay come back with a new code, enter onto our website, and then you had paid, right? So obviously, you know, you lose a lot of customers throughout that process. So we ended up launching cash on delivery, um, which is a very interesting, um, uh, uh, you know, concept to launch in, in such a wide country where we'd, you know, send the package from, you know, our warehouse to another warehouse. Then it would go with plane somewhere. Then we go on a truck. Then that truck would go, uh, to some harbor and onto a boat. The boat will go to an island, then on another motorbike to be delivered to the customer. And that customer would pay $10. And then obviously you need to ensure that that $10 make it back throughout that wow. whole network back to you. So, so that, was a, that was an interesting challenge. And when we first launched it, I think we had more than 100 days. It took us more than 100 days to get that money back 
from when the payment was made. And we had to really bring that down quite considerably, right? To bring down the working capital requirements. That, that's crazy. You, you also told me another thing about Zalora. You had some rather curious problems uh, related to, to the warehouses. Could you tell me that, that little anecdote? It was a fascinating story. Yeah, so obviously you, you you expect a lot when when you start a company, and you you expect kind of challenges that uh, you, you can't foresee. But uh, but this one was special. It was we had opened a new warehouse in in Jakarta, and uh, you know our our warehouse workers uh, uh, refused to go in there and uh, and work one day because um, apparently ghosts had been spotted in the warehouse. So there there was little footsteps on the <laughs> on the top of the the roof. Um, uh, which, uh, you know, we, we, um, uh, you know, l- l- later, you know, the, the, the workers thought that this, this was obviously ghosts. So we needed to, to clear that warehouse of ghosts before we could open it again. So we, I'm, I'm uh, glad. And, know, and how, how do you do that? Cause it's not something, uh, I, I've heard, uh, heard of very often, but I mean, you took it seriously. I mean, so we're, we're laughing about it a little bit, but, but you took it seriously and you did clear it of ghosts. You actually yeah, exactly. You, yeah, you got you got to call uh, Ghostbusters. Uh, you know they're they're not like the 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 movie version of Ghostbusters, but it's uh, you know local spiritual leaders that uh, yeah, that yeah. that you pay to go and clear the warehouse for ghosts. And yeah, it, it took took a few hours, but once we've done that and and uh, paid for the Ghostbusting service, we could open the warehouse again and start delivering packages. Well, it tells you a little bit about uh, you know cultural sensitivities and and I and I guess. You know, this one was particularly curious, but I, uh, but I mean, it's not unlike any of, uh, you know, any other cultural constraints and challenges. I mean, these are concerns that, that people have in, 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 you know, any concern that your workers have, you know, has to be taken seriously. I, I, I just love that story. It's a little bit, um, yeah, out of the ordinary, you could say. Yeah, it's, it's a very good point, right? And, um, you know, there's a lot of these these points, where, and it's different from market to market, right? We had another situation where we were going to move offices because our office was starting to be a little bit run down, and um, we had identified this amazing new office, um, which was much better, much better facilities, beautiful view, amazing, and um, you know, just before we were about to kind of sign the contract, uh, a few employees said, "Hey, we would prefer not to move there. Why don't you do a survey?" And uh, we did the survey in the whole organization and uh, about 95% or so said they didn't want to move to this much nicer office, which was, you know, not, not that far away from where we were before. So it was not about location. And then we found out that, um, uh, you know, they, there was uh, a suicide that happened in this office a few years earlier. And also the company that was there before us had gone bankrupt. Um, oh wow! So uh, it was a tainted space. So we chose not to then sign this office, which was actually two and a half times more as expensive. And we told our employees, "We're going to listen to you and stay here." And uh, the employees got incredibly, incredibly excited, right? So we actually achieved, <laughs> you know, the the spiritual uplift of having a better office by not moving at all. Um, that so, is a know. fantastic <laughs> yeah. story. I, I yeah, love yeah. that. It's a win-win for uh, all around. Win-win. A win-win. Yeah, exactly, right? So we just refurnished yeah. that office for about $20,000 and we stayed. <laughs> Magnus, I, I want to go back and peel off some, some more layers on, on your background. Well, there are a few things that not, not everybody knows about you. I mean, you know, Antler, and we'll, we'll get to Antler, is, uh, you know, is becoming a, a very important force in uh, pre-CD uh, innovation. But let's go back to when you were re- really young, because you, you grew up in Norwegian farm country, which... I, I guess in Norway it's pretty normal because most people actually grow up in farm country. Um, tell us about your parents. So I understand one's a communist and one's a hippie. How does one become <laughs> yeah. a venture capitalist from that background? Yeah, so so more or less. So, so we uh, I grew up in a in a small place called Holm, uh, which is a few hundred people. It's it's kind of outside of another small place called Sanda. Uh, which is in Westfall in Norway, and uh, uh, you know it was about seven eight kilometers to the to the closest store. Uh, you know we used to to bike to school uh, was the same same distance, and uh, you know it was just a lot of farms around. You know the water on one side and then the mountains on the other, which you typically typically see in Norway. And um, you know growing up, uh, obviously uh, you know uh, my 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 father. Uh, 
yeah, he, he, he was a communist and, and truly believed in, um, in, um, you know, the, the power to the people. And uh, I think a lot of obviously what he, what he believes in and, and believed in is, uh, is, uh, you know, very valid. And I think, you know, in, in Norway, socialism has worked incredibly well. My mother only was more on the spiritual side. Um, and, um, uh, which led to, I think, very interesting discussions as we grew up. Uh, I think also very interestingly, my, my father was, uh, very into dog sledging, which obviously, uh, you know, in, in Norway is not that uncommon either, but in the rest of the world is kind of a niche sport. So we, we had about 26 huskies in, in our backyard. And, uh, you know, we spent a lot of time, uh, you know, literally in the summer driving them in front of, uh, you know, to an old car where we take out the engine and everything up through the woods and then in the winter uh, on the snow. And, uh, uh, you know, this just a tremendous upbringing with a lot of activities and, uh, you know, literally being outside the entire time when you were not in school or sleeping. I, I actually also grew up with Huskies, but they were my neighbor's Huskies and they were right outside my bedroom window. I know all about Huskies. <laughs> yeah, because they, yeah. whine, they whine a lot in the in the early morning hours. So uh, they, anyway, Huskies, they, um, interesting <laughs> yeah. uh, species. They, they require some attention. They do. Well, let's... Um, Let's maybe move uh, move into Antler for for a little bit. Uh, basically, you are you have started something quite unique with Antler. Can you give us a sense of uh, first of all the space pre seed investing? What is the space to you? Why is it attractive? What's happening generally in the space? And then let's get to what you then chose to do. Yeah, so I, I think uh, it's it's probably one of the you know. Fast, fastest growing parts of, of, of the global economy, right? It's, it's more and more truly exceptional individuals uh, that choose to um, uh, spend their, their time and really all of their time solving important problems and opportunities. And, you know, it, it is the best time ever uh, for people to do that, right? I mean, we're really seeing true globalization for the first time ever. Um, you know, it took the airline industry, I think, 68 years to get 50 million customers. It took Pokemon Go. 14 days to get 50 million customers. So that kind of globalization is on a different scale than it ever has. And it's not only B2C, it's also for B2B through new, new wells of sale, selling, uh, you know, scaling businesses is cheaper than ever through, um, uh, you know, SaaS, SaaS platforms, the cloud, um, hardware prototyping, uh, even kind of deep tech businesses and research and access to labs and all of this really advanced stuff that you otherwise had to build you formerly had to build on your own, uh, you can now access much more cheaply. So the cost of building is cheaper than ever. Disruption is fast, happening faster than ever. You know, um, If you look at S&P 500, the average age on that index used to be um, 50 years if you only go half a century back, and now it's down to 12 years. So the biggest companies in the world are getting disrupted faster than ever. And uh, you also see kind of all the maturation of all of these technologies happening at the same time. While in the past you'd see over a hundred years could be defined by one technological advance, we now see kind of ten to twenty very kind of promising new technologies going from the lab and science fiction to uh, affecting and disrupting existing businesses and solving new problems at the same time, right? And and you're in the middle of all of this. Obviously, kind of MIT is a big hub of all of that. So um, you know, so it's it's just from um, from a structural macroeconomic perspective, it really makes sense from, uh, you know, what the, our generation and the upcoming generation is, 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 is excited about and passionate about is really, you know, creating new things, uh, having a real impact. And that also really, um, you know, helps that, that the most, the smartest people in the world choose to, to do this instead of, uh, going to Wall Street and crunching numbers or, working in consulting as I did before, or working for large corporates. So all these things are kind of coming in at the same time. And then if you look at tr the, the traditional uh, or how asset management has developed and investment has developed, you, it really started off with, um, you know, you, you can buy into large corporates and buy a share of large corporates. Uh, then, you know, you had, uh, uh, you know, private equity coming where you could buy big companies or a share of big companies and then leverage them up. And then you have venture capital coming and then you had accelerators coming. And, and obviously where we operate is, is really working with exceptional individuals from day one. So I really just believe that what we're doing, um, is, 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 is just, uh, a new way to, to, to invest in a new way to support the ecosystem that, 
that uh, really is, is timely versus where the world is today. So, so in specific terms, what would you now characterize the pre-seed uh, stage to be? Because you operate internationally, which is interesting because in the US, pre-seed had a meaning and then it kind of changed. Uh, the amounts are slightly you know, changing with the Series A rounds going up. How do you define pre-seed investing in terms of the uh, stage the teams are and the amounts that people generally are investing? Well, so I think it depends from market to market, right? So uh, also also in Antler, we've adapted a little bit the amount that we invest depending on which location you're in. Um, if you look at, for example, seed valuations, um, you know, uh, I don't have the exact numbers, but but it used to be a little bit like, uh, you know, you'd, you'd be at 10 to 12 million dollar valuation in the US. In Europe, you'd be to at, you know, seven to eight million dollar valuation. In Asia, you'd be at around five. Um, uh, China obviously being more more like Europe to US than the rest of Asia, and um, um, you know you see a little bit the same on the on the pre-seed level. So um, uh, you know we we invest somewhere between a one to two million dollar uh, valuation, um, uh, but there's also a lot of angel deals and pre-seed deals that are at higher valuations than that, and obviously also lower valuations. But that's kind of the 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 range where where, where we operate with our first investment. We also invest in seed. Series A, Series B, and Series C, um, but for the pre-seed investment, that's that's where we operate. And um, uh, you know, it's 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 either it's the first round into the company. Actually, mostly for us, we always lead typically the first round into all of the companies we invest in. Um, mm. At at times, you know, for other investors, pre-seed can also follow on on a, on a small angel round, but it's typically the first money that goes into any new business. But Magnus, when, when you and I talked about this uh, over a year ago, it looked slightly different. You have also grown at an astonishing speed and you have changed a little bit your business model. Tell me what your initial vision for Antler was. What was your hunch early on? What kind of model were you going to go for? And then how did you then morph into becoming a little bit more of a traditional venture firm? Although you know the specifics of your model, which we'll get to, are, you know the the operational dynamics are a little different, but what were you thinking early on, and and why did you change? Was it just because people said, "Magnus, this is fantastic"? You know, you you can actually have bigger plans, or did did you learn something along the way that made you adapt the model? Well, so at at the core, of what we do, we still do what we set out to do, right? And we're still doing that, and um, we're doing that about two to three hundred times a year now. Um, uh, which is really working with exceptional founders from day one and, and, and supporting their business from the very beginning, supporting, putting together the co-founding team, validating the business model and really kind of investing almost pre-incorporation. Um, and, um, and, and that's, that's, that's at the core of what we're doing. And the way it works and the way, you know, we got excited about this is, for example, when I was part of building Solora, a number of our, uh, Great people who'd come in and worked with us for a bit. They left to set up their own business. So, out of Solora came, for example, Gojek, which is now a fifteen billion dollar company. Shopee, which is also a plus ten billion dollar company. Chris Feng started that. He he used to work with us in in Solora and uh, Kevin and uh, and Nadim who built Gojek used to work with us Solora and and you kind of see this everywhere that people have been part of building a fast growing tech company, but were not the founders. The founders as well sometimes will become serial founders and launch more businesses, but the level below, they are exceptional, uh, exceptionally placed to build uh, the next great thing. And you and see they're hungry right. too. And they're hungry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so we we that was the initial thesis. So let's work with them to kind of build the next big thing around solving important problems. And um, the other thing that came to mind is like people who know uh, business and operations really well, they might not not know product builders and uh, technologists all that well. And people who are deep, you know, PhDs, postdocs in AI or machine learning, they might not know great operators who've been part of building Spotify and scaling Spotify. So why don't we so create at, a platform? At, uh, right. So at the heart, it's a networking, a very, very uh, precise kind of matching platform also. Like you're matching one type of exceptional talent with another type of talent and creating these power teams. Yeah, so so I mean, obviously, matching in a certain sense, but literally, what we're doing is we're just selecting exceptional individuals. So we get about fifty thousand applicants per year now, and we're also headhunting people ourselves, um, and we select the top three percent of them. Um, 
who are ex- they're all excited about building their their next great business, and we select them. And some of them will already have a co-founder. Some of them will have a very advanced view on what they're going to build. Others have just decided that okay, now I'm going to go out there and, and build the next great thing. And then some of them will 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 partner if one is a great operator and the other is a great uh, product builder. They will partner and build a very even stronger co-founding team. And then we focus a lot in on the business model validation early on because. Like what really irritates me is I, it's one of the things that irritates me most is I, if I see an exceptional team um, working on something that really doesn't make sense and they're wasting three to four or five years of their life to do that, that's, that's just a waste of tremendous talent and a waste of a lot of other people's money, right? Um, and How do you tell same- people that, Magnus? How do you tell people that? <laughs> that literally, that's a big responsibility also to, to make that claim though. Uh, you know, do you literally drag people out of the dead end projects and and put them on more productive ideas? Well, so the way that like so, a great example is you know we, we have this exceptional company. Uh, they're just closing a huge round now. Um, uh, so 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 can't disclose the name, but there was this tremendous co-founding team, like three people, a woman and two guys. One had been part of building one of the greatest fast growing. Um, uh, tech companies here in Southeast Asia. The other came from a very well-known brand. The other is an amazing product builder, and they came, you know, to us and, and wanted to build um, a travel tech site, right? And there's a lot of travel tech companies out there. There are some great ones as well, but this particular area kind of makes sense to do. But you know, I, I'd probably personally seen like twenty or thirty pitches of people who were building the same thing, and we did a little bit more research because now we have offices in the U.S., in Europe, in Africa, and Asia, and Sydney. So we just looked at all these ecosystems and said, like, "How many people have tried to build this?" And we came up with like, "Here's 120 teams that tried to build what you are doing." And by the way, the most successful one has been in operation for four years, and they raised five million dollars, and most of them have died. So. Please, please just kind of, you know, we're not saying that you shouldn't build this because sometimes, you know, past performance is not sometimes a, a predictor of the future, but at right. least look at what all of these people did and learn from them. Call 20 of them, like call 20 of the teams and talk about what you're doing and then convince yourself that you should still do it. And they did that came back and said, okay, all right, we're, we, 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 we want to look at something else. And then we started looking at, okay, where are great opportunities that are somewhat adjacent that they're passionate about? And, and now they build this tremendous company, which is, you know, the leader in their field and growing incredibly fast. So, you know, that, that's how you, you don't go into anyone and say, hey, you shouldn't do this. Uh, even if they can call 20 experts and they can all disagree that they should do it. But if they do, they just need to convince themselves that, you know, they didn't make it happen because we are going to do it differently. And this is why we're going to succeed, right? For example, like Facebook was such an example, you know, there was hundreds of social networks before they came on board and, you yeah. know, they just had the magic formula and made it happen. And yeah. I don't think anyone could have gone to Zuckerberg and told him that wouldn't work. <laughs> he would he would have done it anyways. <laughs> That's true. So Magnus, you've, you've done something right, obviously, because Crunchbase says that y- you're their number one VC firm right now. And you've raised, I guess, a total of 78 million was the last number I saw them have. You, you know, maybe you have a better a number for me. You've made, uh, according to them, 122 investments. You've led 59 rounds. And as you pointed out, you have offices in New York, London, Singapore, Sydney, Amsterdam, Stockholm, Nairobi. And Oslo, and I think there were some more that you told me that you can't disclose, but they're in planning. Uh, for instance, you're currently notably absent from Silicon Valley. Just explain all of this. I mean, certainly Silicon Valley wasn't your first thought. Uh, where are you expanding and, and why? So um, uh, we, we fundamentally believe that um, the kind of technology ecosystem is, is quite connected, right? So um, you know, literally, for example, Indonesia, which is a market I know quite well since we're part of building things there. A lot of the models that were built there, um, you know, was a few years earlier launched in China and, and a few years prior to that in the US. And so you can learn a lot from other ecosystems on, on what works and what doesn't. Uh, also for kind of more real innovation. So where you're not adapting a, a proven model to a location, but where you're kind of innovating from scratch, um, you know, a number of, um, uh, the world's most, fo- you know, if you're building a new battery technology per se, uh, you're reliant actually on uh, getting access to the world's best uh, uh, experts within that field. Uh, 
And you know, they they can be anywhere, right? They could, they could be in Japan or they can be in Boston or they can be in um, in Sydney. You just don't know. So we wanted to ensure that we have access to all of those ecosystems and all of those access in terms of kind of supporting our founders from from the get go. So a great example of that is we just built this company a couple of years ago in in Stockholm called Skycraft, which is a tremendous uh, uh, you know drone and AI company which flies over infrastructure. And for example, you know the, with the wildfire fire, for, uh, for wildfires you had on on the west coast in the US, they would fly over the power lines and see where trees had fallen over or or where you had to do maintenance, and they will discover that um, automatically and alert people so they can go out and cut it off. And and you know they their their customers are utility companies. Um, so they if they were just building this out of Stockholm, they would have one customer they could talk to or two customers they could talk to. But right. through our network, we could put them in contact with utility companies in in. Yeah, I think we put them in contact in the first week with utility companies in twenty. Markets, and that's the best way to truly validate your business models, right? So there's a lot of effects of this this global platform for there's a lot of effects. But, but you're also slightly crazy, aren't you? I mean, scaling something in so many places, Magnus. I mean, it's a little bit like a deck of cards. How are you so confident that you can pull all that off? I'm assuming some of these offices aren't hundreds of people with the Silicon Valley style, you know, oxygen tanks and, uh, you know, all of the bells and whistles. I mean, these are moderately sized offices and, or, or are you splurging on, you know, fantastic uh, mahogany chairs for all these people? No, so we, we uh, you know, our cost is, is real estate. So we need an office typically for 100 to 150 people in each location and then people. Right, and we have uh, eight to ten people in each location, and then we have uh, you know about eight eight venture partners. So they're part time. We don't pay them a salary, but they get some carry upside. And then we have typically about forty to fifty advisors that we bring in in that ecosystem. So that's kind of how it looks like in each location, and it looks the same in each location. And those partners who lead that um, are in almost all circumstances kind of stronger or better than I am, I, I personally think. And that's how this this works, right? So if you look at, for example, take Sydney as an example. Like Bead Moore, it was part of building La Sala, which was acquired by Alibaba for $6 billion. Um, You know, Anthony Millet, he built the biggest uh, sports e-commerce company in in uh, England and sold it to JD Sports. Then he built BrickX, which is one of the biggest fintech companies out of Australia. And they are the people leading that location, right? So... Uh, they're very successful entrepreneurs who, um, you know, ultimately run that. But then we benefit from all of their learnings for the rest of the platform globally, and they benefit from all of the learning from from the other countries. And also, the network that they put in place uh, will benefit founders in Sweden and the other way around. So there are all of these network effects of what we're doing that enables us to be stronger as we grow. But that wouldn't have happened if I was the focal point and then everyone below was more junior, right? It's it's so important to build this as a partnership and not as a top-down hierarchical organization. Is that your Norwegian background or your McKinsey brain speaking? Because it sounds a little bit like the consulting model for VC, which, uh, you know, th- there are a lot of people who say that the VC is an outdated model, like right? old boys network, this, that, or the other. I-, I wanted to sort of tackle that question from a couple of angles. One is, I mean, it takes a certain amount of humility to to do what you're doing because the reason why CEOs want to be the focal point of their companies is they they have this notion one that they know the best uh, decisions you know no matter what two it becomes an ego thing and uh, you know as power grows they, they you know most people enjoy that how did you adopt this why did you adopt this approach and and how does it feel to be in an organization? And, you know, you may or may not be right that they're all smarter than you. Probably not. But at least you have this attitude that you're not going to just hire underlings that just do your job. I have had, you know, mixed experiences in looking around in, in workplaces with, uh, you know, bosses that are not so comfortable once you start doing good things. What's your comment on that? Yeah, so, so I think... Um, in f- fundamentally, what we do that, that that is a requirement, right? Otherwise, it just it just wouldn't work. Um, so, so so you have to build it that way, and that means that when you set it up, um, you have to give a lot away, right? It means that whoever comes in and is leading a new location should have a similar type upside that 
the variable owner came in and built locations earlier, right? So you need to structure it up in this way and you need to bring on board people who feel that we get stronger as we add new locations. And one of the ways we did that is obviously through technology and our, you know, the way we set up our technology network. We have a global playbook, which everyone contributes to. We have gamification of knowledge sharing. We have a shared global network and all those things. And then we have, on the incentive side, we also have a, a pool. So literally all the partners, when we add the new locations, 10% of the upside of that goes into um, this common pool, which means that as we add new locations, new things, existing partners benefit from that. Whether you see it in Nairobi, or you see it in New York, or you see it in Silicon Valley, which by the way, we actually, um, you know, I, I'm not sure if we actually announced it yet, but we just did hire our, our first partner in, in, in San Francisco and in Silicon Valley. I'm very excited to have a presence there. And, you know, we'll, we're, we're going to share more publicly about that as, as we move forward. Uh, well, I'm really glad for in- Silicon Valley that you're actually going there. I was starting to get worried for those guys. You know, they think they're the center <laughs> of the world and, you know, arguably they still are for, for some things, but they, they think everything is happening there. And I think, I guess they're going to get surprised uh, fairly soon that it's, uh, I think luckily for the world, there's a lot of innovation going on also outside the Valley, but you, you are uh, coming there now. Uh, how, what are you thinking about? your presence there, because it is, uh, you know, obviously such a center, even for you guys with such success, it must be a little challenging, particularly to establish yourself in the Valley, just because there's so much going on. What, what's your thinking there on, on how to make that uh, successful from the get-go? Yeah. So um, the interesting thing there is, so, so when we set this up, we thought, Hey, you know, it's, it's probably going to be easier to build this where we come in and we are the only one doing what we're doing. Uh, in right. that location. Um, and that and would be the case in Nairobi and other places where you, Nairobi I'm assuming there are and, that know, many venture firms. To, you know, Sydney, you know, to a certain extent in, in the Nordics and a couple of other locations, right? Where you come in and you capture the space and you're the first mover. Now, the advantage of doing that is obviously you have, um, uh, you have a lot of access to, to kind of all the talent who are, are excited about doing and building their next business and you can support them in doing that. Um, and that, that has been working incredibly well because you, you really get, uh, you know, for example, in, in, in Singapore, we have about 3,000 active applicants uh, per cohort now, and we only select about kind of 70, 80 of them. Uh, so you have that advantage. And um, uh, there obviously disadvantages of being in a location which is, which is smaller in terms of the size of the ecosystem is that the support network for these portfolio companies as they grow is smaller. So the amazing thing, for example, London and in New York and in San Francisco is, is that, uh, you know, the, 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 the rest of the pre-seed layers, the seed layers and the series A layers and the mentorship and the amount of founders that have built great companies and now spend time giving back to the ecosystem. There's just so much of it that um, there's just a tremendous of support for these founders as they're moving from kind of having worked with us and get our investment into the next space. Uh, so no, no, I know, get that, but you you have to agree that th- there are already a lot of different models in the valley. So I was just saying it is challenging for anybody to establish themselves in the valley because y- you're not going to be the first incubator, you're not going to be the first sort of talent network, and you're certainly not the first one who comes along with, uh, you know, with their uh, Rolodex and says, uh, you know, I've got the names for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so for sure not. But it is an advantage that the ecosystem is so strong. So if the ecosystem sure. is that strong then you know that the only thing you need to do is you need to be compelling for enough exceptional people, right? right. And, and what, what is compelling about what we are doing? I think, first of all, um, you know, there, aren't, yeah, there are a lot of various types of early stage players there, but there aren't that many that is fully focused on supporting you as an individual as you take your first step. And if you look at, for example, what happened with Y Combinator is that in the early days of Y Combinator, obviously they were in the, the kind of Boston area first, but then they moved there. And when in the early days when they were there, they were kind of a landing pad for all of the teams outside of the valley that they wanted that access and they would come there and then get that access and Y Combinator would plug them in. And then other VCs saw that they were amazing teams coming from other parts of the US to make this, uh, uh, you know, literally make this their headquarter and build out their business and starting investing in them. And, you know, then they became a success. And I think, you know, we can provide a little bit of that there, um, which is literally... Uh, supporting not only kind of a number of our portfolio companies globally, but also uh, founders from the rest of the U.S. and the rest of the world who are excited about 
you know, pursuing their opportunity there. I mean, it's it's yes, obviously you can you can just fly there and do it, do it yourself. But you know, with with the support of our platform, you obviously have uh, you know not only access to uh, you know other great co-founders and the whole network of people that are there, but on top of that, you also have access to this global platform if you want to grow out from there and to the rest of the world. So we believe that the the, the value proposition is strong enough to uh, secure some of the exceptional people that are excited about pursuing their next big thing. And then you just need to work with them and be the, the go-to place, right? Which we've become, I think, in, in, in most of the locations we've been in for a year or two. And, you know, we hope we can do that there as well. And, uh, um, you know, I'm very excited about it. So it's, it's not only about kind of supporting great founders to build things from scratch there, but also supporting the rest of our portfolio to tap into uh, the ecosystem there, right? But it's, it's. I think our our locations and the other locations are as important as this one. So, if I understand your model correctly, uh, you start with the talent. You then validate uh, the idea around the talent. You then supplement the individual or the little kind of embryonic team with some with others that are, uh, you know, exceptional. You work with them for two months, and then you make your first decision. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. So and, uh, uh, and how yeah. much? So you, and you, inv- your investment is, is is pretty classic. So you said around a hundred thousand US for for ten percent equity. I think that's posted on your website somewhere, or at least uh, it's it's written somewhere. It's a public number. Is that a yes. rough estimate, or is it that's what it is? Yeah. So if we invest in the pre-seed round of, 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 of your company, so basically we make the first investment, uh, we invest somewhere between a hundred to two hundred thousand dollars. So it, it depends yeah. a bit by location. Um, in the U.S., it's it's two hundred thousand um, dollars for yeah. for ten percent equity. So that's the first round. So you end up somewhere. I think, for example, uh, Y Combinator now changed the terms to one hundred twenty-five for for seven percent. So it's 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 somewhere similar in the in in the end to kind of what what is done then in the rest of the market. Um, now, we do also invest in in seed, Series A, Series B, Series C, where obviously we do invest um, quite a bit more. Um, and we do also support companies that are already formed but are in the early stages that believe they can benefit from a platform like ours. Um, so we don't only do that, uh, but it's how we started. And, uh, you know, we obviously are continuing to do that as well. And it's it's, you know, a big part of what we're doing. Could you hit on two or three companies that embody really the style of investing you do and where you feel like you've been able to make make a little bit of difference? We, you and I talked about a couple, I think, Iralo, uh, but you know, f- feel free to just uh, riff over a couple of companies that you feel you've done some uh, valuable things for and that they are compelling businesses that are easy to explain uh, you know, in a few minutes. Yeah, so um, Iralo, it's a it's it's now I think the world's largest easy marketplace. Amazing company, you should check it out. Out Aerolo. Um, they the founder of that um, he used to sell physical SIM cards and uh, and these prepaid cards where you had you know let's say ten thousand minutes to call for free for India. That was a very successful business. He grew that very quickly. So an amazing operator. Uh, but obviously WhatsApp and so on was starting to disrupt that business. So he wanted to build something new, utilizing technology to. Uh, enable scaling, but he didn't know much about technology. So, you know, we spent time with him. Uh, he met this amazing CTO in our court. They formed this amazing team. Uh, based on his experience, we wanted to do something within the, in the communication space. And we realized that, you know, these phones now, they have eSIM capability. I think 500 million phones were sold with that capability last year. And you don't have to buy a physical SIM card, uh, but you can go into an app and buy that that subscription and it's most uh, you know helpful when you when you travel right and you want to um, uh, instead of using your local uh, sim card and when you land in let's say bali uh, uh, and pay you know hundreds of hundreds of dollars uh, you buy a local sim card and that then you just have to take out the sim card uh, go and buy a new one put it in you might have lost your other sim card and you know yes. it was quite a cumbersome process but now you can just click on an app and do it and they've grown incredibly fast and through our offices across the globe, we help them, you know, launch more than a hundred markets. And it's just a great example of one of the things we do. Um, uh, yeah. And it's a great example of how the, uh, you know, the vision of a l- l- lot of markets is not just a theoretical one in that one. I mean, they literally, their business model is exponentially more valuable, the quicker they can go to many markets and the entire business is, is about 
operating in many markets and, yeah. and, and the friction you're solving has to do with many markets. That's a, that's a, sounds to me like a great example. Do you have yeah. one or two others? Yeah. So I think another one is the one I spoke about earlier, um, Skycraft. So, right. you know, we had this amazing um, aeronautics engineer who came into the court. We had this guy who'd been in uh, uh, utilities his entire life. And then yeah. uh, a machine learning um, uh, expert, uh, PhD in machine learning and AI, who, who didn't know each other from before, but they met each other, really liked each other, and uh, got quite excited about building something together. And we spent time kind of thinking through, okay, what, what's interesting here? And, you know, uh, you know, it ended up being kind of drones utilizing AI to improve, uh, you know, infrastructure and do maintenance of infrastructure. Because actually, up until, up until now, actually, in most countries, the way you do maintenance on these type of power lines and, and train right. tracks and all that type of stuff, you fly helicopters over them with a camera, which is, oh, which is crazy. crazy. And, uh, and you know, um, and then they spot things. And obviously, this can all be sold by image analysis and, and, and machine learning um, and and cheap drones. Uh, and now they, you know, so we thought, okay, this is interesting. Uh, we put them in contact with drone. I think about twenty drone experts all across the globe. We put them in contact with a bunch of utility companies, as I mentioned earlier. Um, we, uh, you know, more tried to validate its business model as much as we could, put in the first bit of, of money, and then we started introducing them to, uh, to, to customers that they can talk to. And there, I think another power of our platform is that, um, you know, in most countries you only have, in the US you have probably 40 or 50 of these type of players, but then in Europe you probably only have two per country. So, yeah. and it's a six-month sales cycle, right? So if you could, if you only, if you're only in one market with such a business, um, it takes you a long time to scale. But if through our platform we can get you into kind of forty or fifty or sixty conversations at the same time, uh, you can scale much faster. And it's just incredible how fast they've grown out of out of Stockholm. Uh, so that's another example. Magnus, you and I had a, a little conversation earlier uh, about the founder's mindset, and and you said something that I was I stopped at and I. Thought about for a second because you, you, um, and we talked about this in a second. Oh, you, you, you feel like you have to sometimes tell teams and, and individuals uh, that they need to adjust. But w- what are some of the mindsets that you're looking for in people that you select? So, what makes for a successful founder, and to what extent can you? learn to become a founder and to what extent is it innate? I mean, you know, you were a Navy SEAL and that's partly because you chose to undergo, uh, you know, tough training. But I mean, I'm assuming you would never have been selected unless you had a certain mindset uh, and you can explain more about that. But uh, to some extent, they, these things are related and you, you were talking about relentlessness. Can you explain to what extent is that something you inherit and to what extent is it something you just decide to do? Yeah, so, so you know, th- there are three things we look at um, uh, when we look to find great founders. We look at uh, having a tremendous spike, something you're just amazing at. We look at the drive you have as an individual, like the ability to make things happen. And then we look at grit. Um, and I think, you know, those three things are just incredibly important. And you actually will see it in most great founders that you either know publicly or you know in person that they're quite quirky, quirky characters that inhabit, you know, a lot of these three areas um i think the one you said founders are quite boring <laughs> i i don't think they're boring quirky not boring but you said that they're chronically talking about their business all the time so you have to be so that's yes. actually one of the indicators that that you know if you, you said if you you know if you go over to some of your founders you will expect to only talk about their business for three hours and and you may not even i don't know mention anything else so this, there's a this, one-track mindset yeah, this, 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 I think, is a great point. So uh, one of the things we do tell um, all, all the founders, or I, I personally say to all the founders that we're working with is, um, you know, it's incredibly important to front load now when you're building your business. Like the most, um, the most valuable time you have for yourself in, in, the, in the career that you're now going through and, and through building this business is the time you have right now because now it's only you. So you have 100 hours available to yourself. Um, and 
those 100 hours is everything that will determine the success of your business. Now, in two to three years from now, you might have a 1,000 employees and your 100 hours shouldn't be as impactful as they are now because then you made a lot of wrong hiring decisions. So you need to front load and you should literally call up all your friends and all your family and tell them, the only thing I'm going to talk to you about for the next couple of years, if you want to spend time with me, is my business. And the only time I'll spend time to you if you want to help my business be successful, unless you have children, which you should spend some time with, all other people in your life, you should really just talk about your, ch- your children about. And it's this kind of relentless focus that the most powerful and most exciting and most successful founders have. And, and, and you can experience that. You probably experienced yourself, John. It's like when you meet people who are building their own business, they are so passionate and so excited about it. That they can, literally not like that, yeah. a, they can literally not be in a conversation for more than like four or five minutes before they start talking about it, right? And, and you can see the same um, uh, with, with, with almost all like very successful founders that I know. And, and I think they have that mindset uh, from the get-go, but it's not something that I think you're born with. I think it's something that you, you develop um, uh, through kind of being incredibly focused and passionate about what you're doing. And the, the other thing that we, we really want to focus on, which, which I started talking about earlier, is, is grit, right? This, this mindset of not failing. Like, so one of the things that we love talking about about our founders is, you know, a lot of founders talk about, you know, it's, it, it, I started building this business and it failed, but I learned a lot. And, you know, worst case scenario is a great learning journey. You know, if I fail, at least I learned a tremendous amount. And if you go in with that type of mindset as an entrepreneur, you're just going to fail, like for sure. It's just no way you will succeed. Uh, you know, you need to go in as a founder with the mindset that failure is not an option. Um, you need to, uh, you know, be the person who, you know, if 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 things are incredibly hard, uh, you you pursue all avenues and all different directions to make it a success. And you need to have that mindset from day one because if you think there's a chance you will fail, you will most likely fail because even the best businesses out there have had you know tremendous difficulty getting where they were. It's uh, it's great that you're saying this, and and I'm saying this from a person. I just you know wrote a book about failure, but I think the failure that is fruitful is different from the one that these uh, coffee drinking failures uh, you know people talk about. And you and I had this conversation, and I unfortunately. I have met a lot of those founders too, who are sort of like drinking a lot of coffee and being there. They like to talk about the fact that they're working on a company and that they have a company and they are kind of like, you know, it's because, you know, there's this whole idea about being a leisure, uh, you know, having a leisure business, uh, basically, right? There's the, there's a lot of cachet around saying that you, I'm kind of in the innovation environment. And that's kind of what you're talking about, isn't it? Because failing, in the sense that you're like, okay, I need to do a pivot and then taking some of the elements that you did learn and transferring it. That's not, I mean, that is more of a productive, it may not even be a failure, it's a true pivot. But what you're saying is the kind of idea that it doesn't really matter if I fail. These are not the real stakes. This is the kind of, I guess, discussion that you as a VC, you don't want to hear. I, yeah. I, I'm going to give you money and yeah, you know, I'm going to drink some coffee. We're going to learn a lot. And worst case, it fails. Yeah, yeah that's not how you want to spend your $100,000, right? Yeah, yeah. So, 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 so there, there's two aspects of what you're talking about now, which I think is, is, is incredibly important. So, so obviously, it's okay to have failed in the past. Like, I mean, I failed in the past and I did learn a lot from it. But if you go in there in new thing that you're building with the mindset that you might fail, uh, then you you will likely fail, right? So it's just you need to take all of that doubt out of you out of your mind. Then the, yeah. the other aspect that that I want to address, which you're talking about there, which 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 I enjoy uh, talking about, is there is this you know tremendous um, uh, you know trend out there now that entrepreneurship is cool and uh, you know it's it's kind of fun to be a founder and. Um, you know, it's, it's, just, it's, it's just a great thing to do. And all in workplaces all across the globe, you see lifestyle entrepreneurs sitting there drinking coffee. They go to like, you know, I don't know, 20 meetups uh, a week and, you know, eat free pizza every day and all that. And, you know, they might have raised kind of three, four, five hundred thousand or sometimes even more from their friends and family. And somehow they're pushing something forward. And it might be like the sixth or seventh startup they did over the last five or six years. And, you know, the, those are what I call lifestyle entrepreneurs and, and they will never ever succeed. And, and the reason why like 93 or 94% of startups fail is that 
you know, a big portion of that failure rate are, are these people that are not really serious about what they're doing. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, and being an entrepreneur, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a lot of fun uh, and it's incredibly rewarding as you go through that journey. But it's really hard work. No, I mean, it's like, you know, if, if yeah. you want to, as, as yeah. I say, you know, if you want to, uh, if you want to get free massages on Fridays or, uh, uh, you know, uh, eat, eat sushi for, for lunch and have, you know, early after work bears and these types of things, then, you know, go work for corporate or go work for right. kind right. of Google right. or Facebook or something like that. If you want to build a business from scratch, uh, you got to be ready to live in a tent and, you know, uh, uh, cl- clean up the dirt in front of your office door and, stay up late nights and you know really kind of get into the grid of things and and um, and that's that's I, I literally think that the people who do that and the people who spend time putting together great teams and spend time validating the business models and have that type of mindset uh you know they they probably remove most of that systematic risk and the chance of failure is probably reduced to like 20 30 percent instead of being 93 percent as we're writing up this conversation let's talk about something important uh Let's talk about the future. The future just got more serious, right? The, we have uh, COVID-19 around, um, but also there are these long-term trends that we've talked about in uh, some of them very positive in venture and others, uh, y- y- but also very disruptive, right? Because these startups that you are f- uh, funding a- and others will, will drastically reshape industries as we know them. So for some people, this future is very threatening because there are, like you pointed out with the S&P 500, many of the companies that are big today won't even exist tomorrow. And by tomorrow, we're not even talking about the next decade. We're talking about the next three years, the next five years. What are, where are we going in the next decade? Yeah, so I think that, uh, you know, if what we were doing and what we're talking about right now was important in December, um, uh, now it's incredibly important, right? And and I think the founders that are out there now working on building their business um, and working on uh, truly making a difference, uh, you know, they it was important what they did in the past, uh, but now they have an obligation to succeed, right? Because you know we've seen hundreds of hundreds of millions of people lose their jobs, um, and you know a lot of these traditional industries as we see them will not came come back in the in in the same form so exceptional people like the ones we're talking about need to create that new value create that new employment opportunities and uh, you know drive drive the economy forward and uh, you know therefore i think it's just you know for anyone who's considering kind of building something or considering pursuing this like now is the right time like i think all all of us in the early stage venture capital space and all founders out there like really now have an obligation to be part of the path to recovery. And uh, it's probably but the Magnus, best time. It's one of the best times, but I, I guess what I was going with is also is you are founding a lot of different types of businesses. And stereotypically, for instance, in Asia, there are a lot of sort of copycat businesses and historically also a lot of consumer-based businesses. Is this really the right time to launch the next TikTok? Or, or, or do you also as a, funder of companies and, and as a founder of companies have the responsibility to, I don't know, constrain yourself, but just think a little bit about what kind of company you want to, f- you want to start and what kinds of services you want to deliver. Not that everybody is going to create a vaccine business. That's not what I'm trying to say, but have you had any thinking at all around whether you could at least stimulate ideas in certain directions or, or yeah, is that sure. the wrong path to go? No, no, I, I, I think, I think, most definitely, right? So one of the things that we did is we launched uh, a COVID-19 initiative, which was focused in on um, on things you can do in terms of the the, uh, the vaccine, which probably, you know, companies being built right now probably won't affect that much. But in the future, the next pandemic, they, they can to support, but also things in terms of care, telehealth, you know, everything right. within the healthcare space. Uh, we looked at the, you know, educational space. There's obviously a lot of students out there and young people now suffering from pretty bad ed tech platforms and and parents as well <laughs> struggling because they have to deal with these kids uh that are now home and otherwise would have been in school 
That's a um, whole podcast, the EdTech market. We, we can't <laughs> cover this now, possibly, but that's a major, yeah, in, 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 it, yeah it's a major it, discussion and we're yeah. going to be covering it extensively on this podcast because EdTech, well, yeah, let's not even get started, but yes, so, uh, for sure. So, so we got about 1,500 people and teams approaching us from, uh, you know, more than 100 countries in, in, in less than a week um, who were excited about addressing these types of issues. And we started investing in some of them. Uh, we also bolstered up the type of advisors that we have within these spaces and these these areas, and um, um, uh, you know I think that as a philosophy, uh, we we want to invest in companies that have a net positive impact on the world. We still think that it's important to create um, uh, these models that makes people's lives easier, makes people's uh, life uh, more exciting, ensure that businesses become more efficient. So all those traditional businesses that that, that are also building and scaling incredibly fast are also very important because they're creating new jobs and they're adding value to GDP. And, uh, uh, you know, they're, they're making the world more efficient. But at the same time, I obviously think that, you know, we have, since we have such a broad portfolio and we're working with so many people, we can also spend a lot of time on a number of those zero to one problems. So, you know, we, um, um, I think about 20, 30% of our portfolio are these kind of more um, uh, truly kind of, impactful in the way that they're solving really big problems, whether that is bringing healthcare to the next, you know, three, 400 million people who don't have access to healthcare or insurance to, to the same people or, uh, you know, development of new types of genome and biotechnology to solve problems related to health. So yeah, it's, it's, it's incredibly important, but I, I, we shouldn't forget that other category as well, because uh, it is, it is, continuing to to obviously also be very important for the world. No, I get that. And and maybe maybe you can comment on this, but you and I had a discussion about diversity. Maybe it's a little similar to that because I I guess I pointed out that you put somewhere on your slides that 40% of Antler's portfolio companies happen to have a female co-founder and 78% of the of those have a female CEO. So my question to you then was, you know, did this happen by by chance or was it basically affirmative action? And I guess it's a little bit related to this idea of COVID. You can, uh, so tell me, you know, diversity, uh, just cover that for a few seconds as we're rounding up. Did this happen by, ch by chance or did you actually mandate as a Norwegian, you know, 50% female, um, female <laughs> no. founders? So we, we have an open application process. The criteria is the same for everyone. We just select the very, very best people um, that, that we find headhunt or uh, or apply to us, so there's no affirmative action whatsoever. What we do though is we do spend two to three or four months with with our founders initially before we uh, invest to put together a great to help them put together great co-founding teams, validate the business models, and in throughout that process you end up kind of getting to know people incredibly well, and you end up investing I think much more based on on the intrinsics of the co-founding team. And less on uh, one hour, two hour, three hour, or, or seven meetings of pitches. And, um, and, you know, we, so we have zero from the action, but we, you know, we, we do have one of the most diverse portfolios out there for a company, which is not, you know, fully focused on that. Um, uh, uh, not only from a gender perspective, but we also build companies with people from 71 nations and all types of ethnicities. And I think, you know, it, it much more truly represents, um, uh, the global talent pool, uh, right? And, uh, you know, that, that I think is an advantage because, you know, it's hard when you're a later stage VC and there is limited type of, of deal flow, uh, with, with, with the right type of diversity metrics. I, I think all VCs out there right now truly care about diversity. They also truly care about creating equal opportunities for everyone. Uh, based on what the ethnicity they come from or what background they come from, but it's just like it's it starts with the talent, right? It starts with the raw talent, and if the deal flow already, if the seed funds and the Series A funds don't have a diverse portfolio of founders, then it's very hard as a Series B and Series C fund to have a diverse portfolio of comp uh, founders. But we start at top of the funnel, so we can through doing things the way that we're doing it can much more kind of represent the global talent pool. And obviously we're not there yet, right? We can we can also become much better. Um, but we just want to ensure that, and we believe that as long as we create an equal opportunity for everyone, we'll get closer and closer to representing the the global available talent pool. And um, and that should probably be kind of equally represented from, from most uh, ethnicities and, and genders as we move forward. 
right? Obviously, there are some inherent inequalities in the system that take some time to root out. Magnus, this is uh, it's fascinating to hear you chart the next uh, chapter uh, with Antler and the next chapter in Pre-Seed Investment. Thank you so much for spending time with me. Thanks a lot, Trun. Really appreciate it. You have just listened to episode 15 of the Futurized podcast with host Trun Arnemenheim, futurist and author. The topic was the future of pre-seed investing. Our guest was Magnus Grimelon, CEO and founder of Antler, the early stage VC. My takeaway is that the future of pre-seed investing is changing by globalizing and moving beyond the old startup hotspots and into places like Amsterdam, Oslo, Sydney, and Nairobi. VC is also maturing and moving away from the US concept of an elevator pitch and seeks a deeper understanding of the founder, validating the startup idea and building a product by bringing in talent and networks across markets. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, subscribe at futurize.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.